This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. Do you know what my first thought today was? I don't know. I should say we're recording this on Wednesday. My first thought today was if I was to leak our texts and WhatsApps to the press, it would just be photographs of your attempts at cooking. You'd also sort of use it to say that I failed to reply to you. <laughs> I sent him a funny meme and you know what I got back? Nothing. Yeah. I don't think I'm a very good phone buddy. You have your moments. Mm. You're a bit all or nothing. Yeah, it's a quite mood reflective, my phone mm. game, I think. Yes. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do. And and how is your mood? All the better for seeing you, obviously. Well, let me give you something that I think will put you in an even better mood. Yes. What do you have in common with Oxbow Lakes, the poems of Wilfred Owen and Pythagoras' Theorem? <laughs> Oxbow Lakes... The poems of Wilfred Owen and Pythagoras' theorem. I mean, I literally have no idea. They are now teaching you in school, Ed. Ah. And I did text you about this. Our babysitter, as she was leaving last night, she's in sixth form, and she said, oh, I've got to do homework on Ed Miliband. And I straight away said, oh, I can tell you a lot about his, uh, his cold water swimming routine, if you like. And she looked at me strangely and she said, have you met him? I said, yeah, I do the podcast with him. And she said, oh, I thought you used to do something with that other Ed. I think she meant Ed Balls. So she was unaware, but she told me there are 15 people in her politics class. They each have to write 500 words about you, which is 7,500 words in total, which should be good for your self-esteem. And and that her opinion is that her politics teacher has a little bit of a crush on you and makes them watch videos of you in class. Do you think I should, like, offer to do a video or something for... For them. <laughs> for the class? Yeah, I don't know. Or well, for the politics teacher. I did have an experience the other day at a train session. I'd be actually mean to tell you this a couple of weeks ago. A nice chump came up to me and said, oh, my sister's a big fan of yours. Could I have a picture? And I said, yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so it's like this is a danger of people pleasing. So we had the picture. And I said, do you think you'd like me to do a video for her? And he was like, no, not really. I don't think it's no, fine. No, you're all right, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just that I should have learned that, you know, it's like, what, what, what possessed me? You know what I mean? It's just... Yeah, but it's because you're in politics and, and not show business. In show business, they say, always leave and wanting more. You've said that to me before, actually. When we used to produce two-hour episodes, you'd say, two hours is a little bit long, we should leave them wanting more. But it's a big commitment for people. Longer than Ben-Hur. On the subject of having your picture taken with people, yeah. this episode is an interview we did with Senator Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Yes. And I was looking at the photographs that were taken of us afterwards. Yes. And it looks like he's either grimacing or snarling at me. Yeah. Well, I don't want to sort of do a spoiler alert here, but there is this moment in the interview where you say, do you object people calling you Grumpy Bernie? I sort of slightly wondered whether you had coined a phrase about him in a sort of slightly Trump-esque way. I was thinking, oh, well, so maybe that explains why he was looking a bit grumpy in the photo. Well, I, didn't, I didn't mean that was his nickname. The point I was trying to make is he's like the prophet in the wilderness a lot of the time, and he, he's angry and he's railing about things we should be angry about. But I was trying to make the point... How far does that get you? Do you have to sell people on a bit of optimism as well? Yes, but indeed. Perhaps, perhaps with hindsight, it was a poor choice of words, hence the facial expression in the photo. Yeah, that's the only explanation I can think of. Or maybe he was just sort of had enough. He'd been doing a whole... He'd done, I mean, our interview is, of course, unique. 
but he'd obviously done lots of media work while he'd been here, hadn't he? Yes. And he's into his 80s to have that much energy to do that. He's thrown a lot at this visit over here. It's quite incredible, isn't it? I mean, basically, that's me in 28 years' time. Oh, actually, that will be 2051. You said that like it was a big revelation rather than the piece of arithmetic. Well, no, I was thinking it's a year after the government's target for net zero. Oh, I see. We'll be on our... I'm just trying to do the mental gymnastics here. We'll be on, like... We'll have done thousands more... No, we'll have done, like... (laughs) You know, <laughs> you made a big deal of the calculation you were running in your head, and the best you could come up with was thousands. Well, presumably we'll have done. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Twenty-eight years, fifty-two episodes, uh, fourteen hundred and something episodes. Doesn't seem that many, does it? I'm hoping that by, by that stage we can just feed old episodes into an AI and it'll generate new ones for us. Do you think if I'm busy or you're busy, we could just like get an AI version of you or me doing the episode? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more likely that you're busy. <laughs> Kill me, me and my robot friend, me and robot Ed. Well, I was trying to be kind of egalitarian about it. <laughs> should we talk about what we're talking about? We've sort of given it away, haven't we? Yes, but we, we should uh, tell people exactly the context of our conversation with Bernie, I guess. Feel the burn. So we have interviewed US Senator, two-time presidential candidate, former Brooklyn Dodgers fan before they moved to L.A., Yeah, Um, it was quite seminal as it turned out, that event in his life. Bernie Sanders. And he's written a book called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. And we went to his publishers, Penguin Random House, to do an interview with him. We did. Ed bought a cup of coffee beforehand. His card got declined. It was very embarrassing. embarrassing. I bought him a copy of my book and gave a dedication. He dedicated one to me, which said, Ed, thanks for the interview, Bernie which I thought was a pretty... That's a moving inscription. Half-felt inscription. What did you write to Bernie? Can't remember. Not thanks for the interview. To my third favourite Bernie after Winters and Clifton. You didn't say that, did you? Oh, no, oh, then, oh, then oh, really, oh, No, I thought that would have been a good oh, inscription. But no, then that would have explained his facial expression. No, I think his facial expression was you call him Grumpy Bernie. Anyway, so there we are. We've got that to look forward to and various other bits and pieces. What's your reason to be cheerful? Dirty ice cream. We borrowed that dog again at the weekend. Well, so did we. Oh, we went for a walk near it's you. Uncanny. I'm we didn't bump into you. It's uncanny. Um, and then Jean wanted ice cream afterwards, so I, I Googled good ice cream near me. Yeah. And it came up with a place describing itself as dirty ice cream, and I thought, oh, that sounds like one of these awful hipster things, like filthy burgers. But actually, it's a type of dessert from the Philippines, Ooh. and it was fantastic. Unbeknownst to me, it was vegan. I, mm. I couldn't tell. And it was a flavour called Uber, which was more vanilla-y than vanilla, only it's made out of yams. And it was bright purple. Do you like a yam? Mm, it sounds like something Therese Coffee might be pushing. So go on, what's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that we are on a... I think I've said this already, but I wanted to note this book for reasons that I will explain. We're on a Wordle streak. And we're now at 61. Ooh. And our record is 71. Ooh. So we're coming within striking distance. And it has rekindled the Miliband household's interest in Wordle, the streak. Are you feeling a slight sense of vertigo as you head towards 71? Is it like Kaplunk or Jenga? You're afraid of the whole thing coming toppling down? We haven't come close to striking out. We haven't had a six for a long time, so... so I'd be tempted for the next few weeks to have a backup account. Yeah. 
where you try it in beta first. Isn't that a cheat, though, basically? Yes, yes, it is, yeah. I think that would be out with the, the ethical standards of Wordle, don't you think? I suppose it would. Yeah, I don't want you to fall foul of the Miliband household ethical standards. No, it would, t- it would take away from the satisfaction, no? Oh, the responsibility, though, of getting past 71. Well, it's more that you get to, like, midnight and forget to do it, actually. That's a bigger danger. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I see. You need a complex system of reminders. Anyway, I will update you. If we beat the streak, I'll tell you. And if, if you don't hear from me, it'll be like our theme music. It will be sort of <laughs> best forgotten. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Bernie, thank you so much for joining us. I, I want to start, not, not with your book, we'll get to that very shortly, but we have something in common, uh, which is a love of baseball. I'm a big Red Sox fan which is a confession. And maybe you had an early reason to get angry about capitalism because I think I'm right in saying that your team, the Brooklyn Dodgers, got moved to L.A. Yes, that was actually one of the first examples of uh, ugly capitalism that I could remember. When you grow up as a kid in Brooklyn, when I, I grew up, I was one in 41, Brooklyn Dodgers were a religion. That's all. They were the, the, you know, no one asked which team you rooted for. By definition, everybody rooted for the Dodgers. We learned arithmetic by calculating averages of the, of the baseball players. Uh, and then suddenly, a private owner moved an institution away from the people. It was literally beyond comprehension. You know, when you're a kid, you don't understand politics. You don't understand ownership. It is the Brooklyn Dodgers. How, how old you, were you when that happened? Uh, 14. Wow. Uh, how can you move an institution? You know, it's it's like Big Ben here in London. How do you <laughs> somebody? I own Big Ben, and I'm taking it to Los Angeles. Can't be, but it was shocking to me, and we learned a little bit. There was a saying at that time, Ed, uh, in Brooklyn, that the three most hated people were Hitler, Stalin, and Walter O'Malley, the guy who moved the Dodgers, <laughs> and it wasn't in that necessarily in that order. I quote that has come up a lot on this podcast is the one about it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. And, and sometimes it, it can feel like being angry about capitalism is, is like being angry about the weather, given that it's so deeply ingrained. How are you seeking to change people's minds about that with the book? Well, first of all, you know, we are talking about and what the book discusses is, you know, not having the government own every grocery store in the country and all that stuff. We're not, but that's not what it's about. This is the year 2023. It is not 1923. It's not 1823. Today, there is enormous wealth in the world. There is an exploding technology. All right. We are wealthier people. Is it really utopian and unrealistic to say that all people within that climate of wealth and technology can enjoy a decent standard of living? Can we not have quality health care for all, educational opportunity for all? Do we have to maintain the same employment models today that we did 200 years ago? I'm the boss. You're the worker. You do exactly what I say. You don't do it. You're fired. You have no power on the job. You're a cog in the machine. Really? Can we not do better than that? And then the broader questions, which are, are very difficult, is we face an existential threat in terms of climate change. It cannot be solved by the United States alone, the UK, or China. We've got to work together. How in God's name can we work together in a world where there's so much political tension? Who benefits from that tension? But bottom line is, we have the opportunity, if we put our minds to it, and if we have the courage to take on the greed of a very powerful ruling class, and we've got to lay that on the table. This is not my, I have a brilliant idea, and ain't it. 
The people on top are doing phenomenally well. They want to maintain the status quo. It's working for them. It's not working for the working class. It's not working for the middle class. We need to organize and take them on. Let's talk about some of the challenges for your agenda being implemented. We met in, I think it was May of last year, when uh, Build Back Better was struggling the big signature piece of legislation proposed by Joe Biden. Eventually, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, and it's got very significant implications for the fight against climate change, but it's clearly not at all everything you would have wanted. What does this episode tell you about why it's so hard to enact a radical agenda? Well, let me back up just a bit, if I could, Ed, uh, and to say that uh, I was chairman of the budget committee at that point, which played an important role in this whole thing. And in the early months of Biden's administration in 21, uh, we did manage to pass with zero Republican support. We only had 50 members of the Democratic caucus in control of their house. We passed one of the most significant pieces of legislation in, in modern American history, and that is the American Rescue Plan. And so in the middle of the pandemic and in the middle of the economic collapse, you know, sometimes we forget what life was like a few years ago. Small businesses going on to hospitals, being overwhelmed, schools being shut down, people not having, literally, not having food to eat. You know, millions of people facing eviction, facing hunger. We passed the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan with zero Republican support. And then what we did, we said that was emergency legislation. That was a response to the horrors of the pandemic and the economic collapse. Now, let us deal with the structural problems facing American society, the long-term problems. What does that mean? Childcare system, which is a total disaster. Higher education, which is unaffordable. A healthcare system, which is in disarray. The needs of workers to be able to form unions more easily. Expanding healthcare in America, uh, etc. That bill, if passed, would have been the most transformational bill for working class people since the 1930s. We got a variation of it passed in the House, and we had two corporate Democrats who denied its passage in the Senate. And I think that was a blow not only for the working class of America in terms of what we could have benefited. We were providing long-term tax credits to working parents, would have gone a long way to eliminating childhood poverty, but it showed the power of big money in the American political process, and they were able to get two Democrats. We couldn't pass it. You write in the book that the Democrats were a very different party under FDR, Truman, JFK and Lyndon Johnson. What would the young Bernie have thought? I mean, presumably the young Bernie wasn't that happy with Lyndon Johnson. I mean, OK, the war in Vietnam and so on. But right. is that romanticizing the past? No, it's not. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was a tragic figure. He accomplished more domestically than any president uh, since FDR. Because of the war on poverty. Yeah, the war on poverty, what we call Medicare, which means national health care more or less. It's not perfect by any means. For seniors, Medicaid, which is a program for poor people, health care, uh, and a variety of other important programs. So on a domestic level, he was clearly the most important president since uh, FDR. On the other hand, he got trapped into the war on Vietnam and the images of him literally going down uh, in the middle of the night to look at the statistics about the number of American soldiers who were dying. It was a real tragedy. He was caught in that. He got crushed by that. He was advised by people who gave him really bad advice. In, in a sense, a tragic figure. So you think that this is an essential part of the Democrats' past, this, this sort of radicalism? Well, Ed, I, w I would say this, not radicalism. I would say that if certainly during FDR's period, uh, Harry Truman's period in the 50s, 
Uh, if you go up to the average American and say, which political party represents the working class? I think there would have been very little debate. It's the Democratic Party. Which party represents big money? It's the Republican Party. Today, you walk down that street and you say, which party represents the working class? Mm, I don't know. Most people would not say the Democratic Party. So how, how do you characterize that change since the 70s and, and 80s? Is, is it parties like the uh, Democrats or Labour here thinking that the working class voters are given and they, they don't need to concentrate on it? Or is it this, especially in the States, this introduction of big money into politics and having to keep those people happy? I think it's the latter. I think what happened is in the 70s or so, Democrats said, gee, Republicans are getting all this corporate money, all this money from wealthy people. We should do it too. And once you start doing that, you begin to live in a certain world. If you go, no matter what your intentions, no matter what is in your heart, if you start going to fundraisers you know, with bankers and fossil fuel representatives, and you sit down and you hear all of their problems, how they really need deregulation, how they really need more tax breaks for the billionaires, how in the long run that's just a wonderful thing for the economy. And that's what you are surrounded about. And you're not out talking to working class people. You're not talking to people who are unemployed or earning starvation wages. You live in a bubble in which you end up reflecting the values of the people who have the money. So there is no debate that the kind of infusion of big money has corrupted both political parties. But I think it has had a, a major effect on moving Democrats from the working class to maybe being a party of what we call the coastal elites. So, so do you get any sense that the mainstream Democrats have learned something from your campaigns, from the way that you've raised money in this grassroots way? I mean, the fact that you are inside the tent in the Biden administration suggests that maybe there's been some kind of change. The answer is yes and no. Some have, some have not. A lot of candidates now are running and winning uh, seats to the U.S. Congress. And I'm really proud, and I want to get this out there. Uh, when we talk about being optimistic or not, there are more strong progressives, often young people of color, in the U.S. House of Representatives any time in the modern history of this country. Fantastic people. I've worked with many of them, helped to get some of them elected. They are great. And Joe Biden himself, uh, after I lost and he won, you know, we, he and I chatted, and, and he said, let, let, let's form a task force where we'll get your campaign, my campaign to sit down. Let's talk about climate. Let's talk about health care. Let's talk about the economy, education. Bring your best people. We'll bring our best people. We'll see what we can come up with. We did. And a lot of that became incorporated into the American Rescue Plan, into Build Back Better. And uh, Biden has been smart enough, unlike some other people, to understand the reason he won the election is because young people, progressives, came out and support him. That wasn't the only reason. That was an important factor. Uh, and he has continued to keep the door open. Uh, to progressives, to his credit. Now, now, I used the word radical earlier on, but I think that was a sort of mistake because, in a way, part of your whole approach is to say to people, this isn't radical, this right. is common sense. So, say a bit about that and, and how important that is. The idea of healthcare being a human right, and congratulations, by the way, to, you don't hear this often enough, but United Kingdom opened a major platform. It made, there was a major step forward for humanity in 1948 when the Attlee administration in Nye Bevan said, you know what? doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. You are entitled to health care as a human right. Now, you guys take it for granted. I know you're struggling with problems in the NHS now. That was a huge step forward for humanity. America has not yet accomplished that goal, by the way. So the issues that I talk about, I believe, I know, 
are extremely popular issues in America. These are not radical ideas. To say that all people, you know, we have public education in America, free education from kindergarten through 12th grade. Anyone deny that the world economically has changed, that people need more education? So if you have what we call K through 12th grade as free education, should not public colleges and universities be tuition-free? Ironically, they used to be tuition-free when I was a kid. So, of course, we want to do that. Psychologists tell us that zero through four are the most important years of human intellectual and emotional development, right? We all agree. Well, why aren't you having high-quality childcare rather than paying workers in childcare in America? Starvation wages, not enough slots, enormously expensive. Climate, I know an issue that you've worked day and night on, Ed. Who's going to disagree that the future of the planet is at stake? That we can create millions of jobs transforming our energy system? Common sense. So I think on all of these issues, whether it's housing, we got in the city of Los Angeles alone, 30,000 people are homeless today. 30,000 in one city. All right. Half a million people nationally. So who doubts that we should build low-income and affordable housing? We should create jobs. So these are not, quote-unquote, radical ideas. These are ideas that working people understand. Another example, the effective tax rate of billionaires in America is lower than that of a, a nurse or a truck driver. I was going to ask you about inequality and wealth inequality, but that's, been a big, that's a big theme of your book, isn't that it? That sure is. All right. Does anyone think that the rich should pay less at effective tax rate lower than working people? Does anyone think that three people should own more wealth than the bottom half of American society, which is currently the case? So the issues that we raise say to working class people, hey, take a look around you. Working class is struggling. People on top are doing phenomenally well, getting richer, more income and wealth inequality we have ever had. Let's do something about it. It's not radical. It's common sense. But then at the same time, the billionaires have the resources to do a very good PR job you got for it. billionaires. So people almost perceive that kind of thing as an end product of the American dream. They do in so many ways. And it's not even like somebody is sitting up there pulling the strings. For example, one of the chapters is on the corporate media. So in America, which is a different media setup than, than uh, the UK, we have eight huge, very large media conglomerates that control about what 90% of the American people see, hear, and read. Now, Donald Trump claims it's fake news. It's not fake news. Most of the writers are serious, honest people try to do their job. But what you find, and I have been through this for many years, is there are certain issues we just don't discuss. And in the book, I talk about questions that no one has ever asked me. You just asked me, Ed, about income and wealth inequality. Well, you know how many times reporters in America have come up to me and say, Bernie, there are three people who are more wealth than the bottom 50%. What are you going to do about that? That question has never been asked. Bernie, we're the richest country on earth. We have the highest rate of childhood poverty of almost any major country. Never been asked. Bernie, in the UK and in Scandinavia, when a woman has a baby, she gets, what, eight, nine months paid family leave off, Right. Bernie, we have zero in America. Women are giving birth today. We have to go back to work two weeks. Why is that, Bernie? Never been asked to me. Bernie, is it a good thing that so few corporations control the media? Somehow the media has never asked me that question. So what you have is a lot of deflection away from the burning issues facing working people. Bernie, why is the rich getting richer and the middle class continuing to shrink? No one talks about it. Very little discussion on those issues. And what this book is about is trying to force discussion. Talk to us about how it's important to take the 
people who voted for Trump and the issues that they are concerned about seriously and not to be dismissive? Because this is a common theme across both of our politics, I think. Look, it is what is clearly happening in the United States, I believe in the UK and France elsewhere, is there are millions and millions of working people who are struggling. They're hurting. They look at the political parties, the leading political parties. They look at the television. They say, hey, does anybody know I'm alive? Does anybody know that I'm working longer hours for low wages? Does anybody know, in the United States at least, that everything being equal, my kids will have a lower standard of living than I do? And I think that may be the case here in the UK as well. Young people can't afford housing, for example. They're leaving school in debt. Definitely, definitely. All right. Does anybody know that reality? What are you doing about it? Does anyone care about me? Well, if the democratic system and the old parties are not working, there are people who are saying, look, everything out there is crap. I don't believe any of these guys. So some strong man comes along and says, look, I know you're angry. And the reason for it is immigrants or people of color or whatever, Jews, you name it. You throw it in. Nothing new about demagogues of always. You find a scapegoat, right? So you take the anger that people are feeling. You deflect it away from the justified anger against the ruling class that's getting richer at the expense of everybody else, and you point it to immigrants and so forth. That is the issue we have to deal with in the United States. That's what Trumpism is about. It is what I think exists in many parts of Europe as well. What about the idea that that anger needs to somehow be translated into optimism? Because here you are talking about common sense, things that will affect many, many people, and and still you you get labelled as grumpy Bernie. How important is it that these ideas are presented as a positive version of the future? Well, I think it's very important. And it's not a question of being grumpy or not. It's trying to do one's best to tell the truth. So the issue is, and and I think it resonates, the message resonates across the country. Healthcare is a human right. Can we have high-quality healthcare for all? The answer is, yeah, of course we can. Uh, In my country, more than yours, We are dealing with the pharmaceutical industry. Prescription drugs in America cost a lot more than they do in the UK and in other countries. So you have drug companies that make tens of billions of dollars a year, and people can't afford the medicine that doctors prescribe. And you say that to people, say, that's crazy. That's nonsense. Of course people should be able to afford medicine. So the optimism is embodied in a platform that works for all people, not just a few. Is it a radical idea? to say that if you work 40 hours a week, you should not live in poverty. Is that a radical idea? I don't think so. And people respond. That means raising the minimum wage to a living wage. Now, the other thing that's happening, which to me is very interesting, is we are in the midst of an explosion in technology. Nobody can predict what this artificial intelligence will do. It is clearly transformative, not to mention robotics. Who, Mr. Labor Party... Is going to control... That's me, I think. That was you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Who's going to control the implications of that technology? Who's going to benefit from it? If we do nothing, then the corporations say, that's good, I can lay you off. I got a machine to do your job. Wonderful. Well, what happens to you? So the the issue here in the United States, UK, and the the whole world is, is technology bad? No. I mean, some of it may be bad, and we have to look at that. But if technology can increase your productivity as a worker... That's a good thing if you benefit of it. So are we going to reduce the work week? Is that what we're going to do? Are we going to increase your salary? Or will you simply throw you out on the street because the machine took your place? We've got to deal with those issues. I want to read you a quote from Rebecca Solnit. She, she wrote this, big ideas, big transformations, social revolutions often end up in the center, but they never begin in the center. The center is where they're validated. 
and she goes on, all these things start on the margins. When you look at the impact you've had over the last, well, over your career, but over the last decade, you always want rightly and understandably to want to go further. But your ideas have had a big impact, haven't they? Well, I hope so. And I think so. You know, when millions of people vote for you, despite the opposition you have from the political and economic and media establishments, uh, you know, people like Joe Biden are not dumb. They're looking around there and they're seeing. And by the way, the point we make in the book is I lost in 2016. I lost in 2020. But every poll out there, every exit poll showed that we got the overwhelming support of people under 40 years of age, young people. So if you're a politician, you're saying, oh, my God. All these young people want this change. Can we ignore it? Well, you've got to be an idiot to ignore it. So we think that the ideas that we have brought forth, the, the changing in political consciousness in America on the part, not just of me, but of the progressive movement, the electing young progressives, uh, has been a very positive thing in opening up people's eyes to the potential of what we can become as a democratic, civilized society. Should we end on mittens? Well, I feel like everywhere you go, you've been asked about mittens. I think the mittens were more successful than the bacon sandwich, But you were possibly. both memes. This is not the only time you've uh, blown up on social media. When that happens, who tells you about it? Do you get a curated best of those images? You write about it in the book. Look, I, you know, I hope I am smart enough to understand the impact and the importance of social media. I have a very good staff of folks who do it. It's not me, it's them. I'll give you an example of how crazy this thing is. We were in New York earlier this week, my wife and I. Walk out of the hotel, there's some woman jumping around, dancing to music, and I kind of looked at it and we walked by. Who knows, a few hours later, this becomes a meme. There you go. You're I, saw, I saw this, I there saw you this. Know, you saw it, right. <laughs> All I did, my, my part in that whole thing was to walk past somebody. Uh, and that becomes a meme. Not, the mitten thing... It was a cold day. I was outside. So nice mittens. Yeah. And it was, you know, the threat of snow. And I was sitting there wearing mittens and a coat. Does that sound? Yeah. Very, somebody, a good photographer, happened to catch the picture. It's the same with you. You were hungry. You just <laughs> yeah, wanted okay, to bite okay. a sandwich. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> um, well, look, Bernie Sanders, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you, Ed. Thank you very much. Well, did you feel the burn? I felt the burn. It was great to get to talk to him. I wish we could have had more time, really, because he's a very compelling speaker. And what I really like about the book is that it's got a strong narrative backbone to it. It is the story of how he built this grassroots movement and his campaigns and his victories and then moments like his decision to suspend and then subsequently his involvement in the COVID rescue plans and beyond with the Biden administration, alongside these ideas about how to reduce inequality and build a better society. And what I like is it means it's not all theoretical. So, OK, he didn't become president, but he, he did build this incredible movement of support. So alongside the ideas, there's, there's proof of concept or evidence about how you do that and how you get people on board. And I think that that's what's exciting about it as a book for me. I mean, I think there's lots of things to take out of it. I think, first of all, he roots a lot of his politics. It, it's not rooted in some ivory tower thing. It's rooted in like people's daily lived experiences. I think it's incredibly important. Secondly, I like what he says about trying to articulate a common sense. It's not about some radical, dangerous thing. I don't mean he's got a simplistic message, but I think he's got a simple message. 
when he talks about three billionaires who have as much wealth as I think it's the bottom 92% of the population, it's a sort of explicable idea. I'll tell you one thing I was very struck by. He came over to Britain a few months back and I had dinner with him in the House of Commons with a number of other senators and a number of other MPs and just very interestingly walking back out with him. The number of people coming up to him and stopping him and wanting to chat to him, he has got, I don't mean a celebrity in a trivial sense, but he's got a sort of resonance, I think. Yeah, but it's not that kind of kissing babies charisma. It really is about ideas. I mean, he is also a very young 81. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Mm. And he wasn't very grumpy at all. Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, if you've got any thoughts on what you heard the senator say there, if you you were able to identify the exact point at which he took a disliking to me. I'm feeling bad now. I don't I don't didn't want to make you feel guilty. Anyway. Or ideas of um what we should be doing in the future. Yeah, we, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we want those ideas coming. And actually, I think we should sort of let the listeners in on the magic a bit, which is we really did enjoy, we're going to say more about this shortly, but we enjoy every episode, but we really enjoyed doing the train travel episode, didn't we? We really did. And and what's interesting is we've got probably more response to yeah. that than... So offbeat is fine. It doesn't all need to be endogenous growth theory. You know what I mean? No, 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 they're quite right. Can we find in everyday life birds singing? In the sycamore tree. The heron in the ponds, the leaves rustling in the trees, the foxes strolling down the street. The perfect dunk of a biscuit. The crunch of a twiglet. I had a twiglet recently for the first time in a very long time. How did it go for you? I mean, honestly, I was reminded how much I like twiglets. I'm so pleased. Did I tell you that when I was growing up in London, there was an off-licence literally two doors down from me? Did I tell you this? No. Yes. That's not the end of the story, is it? (laughs) No, I used to nip out and buy a a packet of Twiglets in the evening. It's a shame Parkinson's isn't still on the air, otherwise you could go on that show and tell that story. (laughs) If you ever ever write your memoirs, I think that's a strong contender for opening anecdote. Look, you're just grumpy about Grumpy Bernie. So so don't come all censorious with me, chummykins. All right. This is from Andy Rock, who says... Andy the Rock. Rock. Andy the Rock. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? Um... Do you know what that's a reference to? No. The Rock, the, the wrestler stroke actor stroke possible future president of America. Right. Who says, hi, Ed and Jeff. I've just finished listening to the podcast on international train travel and was equally inspired to jump on a train to anywhere. Myself and my wife run a small business called Herbie Four Ooh. and ritually listen to Reasons to be Cheerful whilst making our weekly batch of tofu. Aww. So we've been following Ed's tofu journey Aww. with interest, not just our train journeys, but the tofu Aww. journey. And it says, it strikes me that Ed simply hasn't been using good tofu. Mm. You wouldn't do all the additional marinating and pressing of cheese which is really tofu made from cow's milk instead of soya milk at home so you you shouldn't have to do it with tofu anyway if you have a postal address i will happily send you each a packet of apple smoked tofu and your tofu experience will never be the same again so what what's he actually saying there he's saying i haven't been using good tofu you wouldn't do all the additional marinating and pressing of cheese so what does that Mm. mean 
So it's it's saying that if you wouldn't do it with cheese, which is basically the same sort of principle in the making process as as tofu, yeah. only with cow's milk instead of soya milk, that shouldn't be necessary with tofu. And if you've got tofu which has been made like that, then there's something less than optimal about it. Mm, interesting. The next one comes from Nick Hollis, and it's also about the train episode. Uh, dear Ed and Jeff, I very much enjoyed this episode, particularly as our son worked for Eurostar for several years and have enjoyed some European journeys. Near home, Dorchester, the line to Bristol is a gem with three request stops between here and Yeovil. And then he also goes on to say, uh, well done with Park Run and Swimming Ed. I was the chap that accosted you on the edge of Hampstead Heath in the winter of 2018 during the Beast from the East, who said he listened to you while swimming. Best wishes, Nick Hollis. Now, I think that it is then Nick who put me on to these, what I think he called Swim P3 players. Yes, I remember this conversation. I mean, I am, when I'm in the ponds, and I don't know whether I've told you before that I go cold water swimming, Jeff, but when I'm in the ponds, I'm literally the only person wearing headphones. And I was thinking about it this morning. It is easier in the winter when it's cold to have something to distract you. Mm. Anyway, so if it was Nick that put me onto these Swim P3 players, Nick, thank you so much. They've changed my life. It's been a very significant figure in your life. They've changed my life. I sent a spare pair that I had to Alistair Campbell because he said he wanted to learn German. Hang on, so is, is he sw- swimming and repeating German phrases at the same time? Don't, I just don't, honestly, I don't know. Well, Nick, th- th- this is just proof of you never know the impact you're having on other people's lives. Seriously, Nick, it's had a big impact. And I think when I take, tell people what they are, people kind of say, yeah, but you can't listen to those in the water, can you? And I'm like, yes, you can. That's the whole point of them. If it wasn't for Nick, Alistair Campbell wouldn't be throwing around those Schaefer's S's and umlauts like he does. You do like a good umlaut, don't you, Jeff? Oh, I love an umlaut. Yeah. Finally, this is from Jenny Lockwood, who says, Today's episode was a welcome, positive view of the environmental and personal value of long-distance rail travel. I love rail travel, and I can't wait to try the new overnight European services. After hearing the interviews, Mark Smith's in particular, it was disheartening to hear Jeff summing up the old mantra, but flight comparison websites are way cheaper, I paraphrase. I don't know how I became the bad guy here. I'm the person who took a sleeper train from London to Inverness last summer, despite it being more expensive than flights and a hotel. Jenny continues, yes, sometimes it is cheaper to fly, but you don't get the same experience and there's the environmental impact. In all seriousness, Jenny, I really appreciated you emailing in. But the point I was trying to make was less about me and more about that's going to be the first thing in people's minds, cost. And... You and I are people, as maybe many of our listeners are, are people who who like the idea of days on trains and sleeper berths and so on. And maybe can afford to pay a bit more. Firstly, there's that. You can afford to prioritise factors other than the price. So I think that's really important. But I I also think that for for a lot of people, they are going to see the length of time spent travelling as a cost Um, it's not going to be easy for them to get into that mindset. And I just wonder if part of convincing people that it's the better thing to do from an environmental perspective and their impact is is trying to get those prices down and to subsidise them rather than saying, oh, but this is more fun. And look, we never quite got to the bottom of this in the episode, but certainly I think all of our perceptions are that in continental Europe, the prices are lower 
I think Mark was not sure about that advancing, but certainly the case that you can seem to be able to do long European journeys for not very much, don't you think? Yeah, but I still think getting the number beneath what you pay for a flight is hard. But you're also asking people to spend maybe like a couple of days on trains and do a stopover in a hotel. That's true as well. And and, and trying to convince them that... That's true. Um, oh, that'll be more fun yeah. than sitting around the pool in Malaga. Yeah. Is, is a hard sell. And I think getting the price down might be you know at least part of that. I'm completely with you in the sense of, in the whole green transition, we've got to be able to show to people many people facing a big cost of living crisis, that it can be the cheaper choice. I think this is really important. I I don't think we should be sort of apologetic about that. I I genuinely think that is really, really important because it can't simply be a middle-class privilege. So I think it's an important point to discuss. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro. I think I'm going to have to get back on the cooking bicycle. So do you liken the tofu incident to a scary fall off the bicycle? Mm. Your knees were grazed, you're a little bruised, but you, you need to you need to get back on it as soon as possible. I'm definitely a little bruised by the it's edible experience. So what's the plan then? What's on the docket? Mexican bean soup. I think I need something which is safe, something I've made before. Don't you think? So you're going to go back to an old favourite? I think that's right, don't you think? I think so. I think that's a good instinct on, on your behalf. Yeah. What um, have you got in the way of chef's paraphernalia? Do you wear an apron? You got a chef's hat? Would that make the food taste better? Just make it more fun? Hmm. You know what I'd really like to be able to make is potato pancakes. Do you know potato latkes? I do. I've never made a good potato latka. My mother used to make brilliant potato latkes. Why don't you make that your challenge to yourself then? Mm, I don't know. I've tried them before and I... I think I managed to create a disaster scenario in my in-law's kitchen. <laughs> so I think I, uh, I don't think that's the one to get back on the bike with. No, but why don't you set yourself a goal to get to the potato latkes? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to make the perfect potato latka by end of the year. Yeah. Okay, it's a challenge. All right. All right okay. Challenge accepted. We're going to keep checking in on you yeah. on that. We're not going to let you off the hook. Should we thank our guests? Yeah, the senator. Senator not grumpy, Bernie Sanders. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer produces our content. We're back up from Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be... Grumpy. Grumpy.